I cannot let this thing expand beyond this planet. Nor do I intend to kill a million or more people to stop it. I want another answer. I'm putting you gentlemen on the hot seat with me. I want that third alternative. Bridge to all decks. Time for the last episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve in season one. I'm Scott Nance. And I'm Steve Morris. And I, I can't believe we got here. We've reached the end of season one, Operation Annihilate. It has been an incredible journey. And man, what an amazing season it's been. What an amazing season. You know, I remember when we first decided to move forward with this and we first sat down to record our deep dive of the cage. Yeah. It feels like we just did this. And now here we are. We are doing it for the last episode of season one. And, you know, I'm going to ask you a question that we're going to explore in a, in a very big way another time. But just in a nutshell, since we are doing this for our last episode of season one, like what is your general take of, of season one? Now, now that we've done this deep dive, now that we've, uh, we've, we've explored each and every episode in production order in this way, like how do you feel at this moment before we get into this with Operation Annihilate? I'm going to say this in a weird way, and I'm going to say the same sentence twice. My reaction has been, it's really good. And but what I mean by that is it really is good. You know, Star Trek's got rose-colored glasses for me. Like, I, I always love it. I love episodes that even aren't that good. It's something that is part of my childhood. It's part of my upbringing. And so there was a sense of going and really examining it. Am I going to find more flaws and more problems with it that I've kind of glossed over over the years? And, and while sometimes that's true, I have certainly seen things that are pro be more problematic than I thought. My main reaction is, damn, this is a really, really good show. It really is. That, that's been my main reaction. How about you? Well, I, I, to go along with that, because I completely agree. See, my love for Star Trek overall, over its 55-year history with all the shows and all the movies, my love for Star Trek is not absolute. When I, when right. I love Star Trek, then yeah. When I like Star Trek or even think it's okay, then overall I love it. But when it's not good, then I don't like it. In the case of the original series alone, my love for Star Trek is absolute. Yeah. Even the lesser episodes, I still find something to love about them. And even an episode which I think qualifies as the worst of season one, which is you know, an alternative factor, I found things to love about that. And I certainly found things to love about Operation Annihilate, which is an episode that I do love a whole lot more uh, than Alternative, alternative Factor. Factor? Uh, oh, yeah. No question. I mean, it's definitely like infinitely better than Alternative Factor. But I will say that uh, overall, the, the level of discovery that, that I have certainly had, I know you have too, with all of the different things that we've reassessed about season one, all the new things that we've discovered, and, and even the... Uh, the way that everyone who's been listening to Enterprise Incidents, the way that they've appreciated how we have looked at the show in a serialized way, which, which is a whole new way of looking at it, and everyone's seeing how we, we've covered the original series with a fresh set of eyes and bringing a new perspective, a new level of enjoyment to the original Star Trek. That, to me, is the greatest reward of all, is that everyone has really... Uh, like like they, they get what we're doing and they like it. Absolutely. It's been it's been great. And this has been in a weird way, even though I'm a lifelong Star Trek fan, this has been my real introduction to the Star Trek community. And it has been 
Honestly, we were just saying before we got on mic, it's kind of overwhelming to me how many people there are who are engaging with us on Facebook, on Twitter, who are interested in the questions that we're asking. It's, it's really incredible. Well, before we get into this episode, we just want to say to everyone who has found Enterprise Incidents, thank you for following us. Thank you for embracing what we are doing. Thank you for sharing Enterprise Incidents with your friends and fellow fans. Thank you for commenting on all our Facebook posts, all our tweets. Thank you for discovering us uh, along the way and sort of binging to catch up to where we are now. And definitely thank you for the comments and the reviews. Uh, the reviews that we are seeing on Apple Podcasts are really the reviews that are helping us uh, get discovered by other people. So if you have commented and reviewed us on Apple Podcasts, thank you very much. And if you have not yet, reviewed us on Apple Podcasts, please do so because those reviews are crucial. And yes, we are going to mention this at the end of the episode. But right now, Steve, it is time for our deep dive on Operation Annihilate. Like we said, it is the last episode to air and the last episode to be produced for the first season. It was filmed between February 14th and February 22nd, 1967. It was filmed over six and a half days, so it went one half day over schedule. It is the 30th episode of Star Trek to film. That, of course, includes The Cage. It is the 29th episode to air because The Cage did not air as part of the regular season. It aired on April 13th, 1967. And, Steve, this was its only network airing. Really? The only time it aired. On NBC TV before it went into syndication. I, it's, it's, you mentioned this on some, many of the episodes, and some of them there was a clear reason why that was happening. I really wonder why this, and I think, did you say, was Aaron and Mercy another one of them? Like, why these episodes did you not rerun? I, I was really surprised that Aaron and Mercy was not given a rerun, given the fact that it was the first appearance of the Klingons, A, and second because... Well, they a, didn't know it was, that was important. Uh, they didn't know the first appearance of the Klingons was important at uh, the time. They sure do now. <laughs> now they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but but it's also, uh, you know, I mean, Aaron Mercy was a great episode, but this episode was written by Stephen Karabatsis. So Stephen Karabatsis, from August to December of 1966, he was the story editor for Star Trek. Now, during that time, he had his hands full, but he was contractually bound to write his own original episode. But he never had time to do that because he was being the story editor, which is a big job unto itself. So when he left that job at the end of December, he now had time to work on his, on his one and only screenplay for the original series, wow. which came from an idea uh, uh, pitched to him by Gene Roddenberry. So Stephen Karabatsas really ran with it. So he wrote his story outline on December 15, 1966 when it was called Operation Destroy, when he completed his second draft teleplay on January 19, 1967, that's when it was changed to Operation Annihilate. The new story editor, D.C. Fontana, Dorothy Fontana, gave it a script polish, a final draft teleplay dated January 24th. Then showrunner and producer Gene Kuhn did his rewrite, a revised final draft that came on February 3rd, and Gene Roddenberry, who came up with the idea from the very beginning, did a second revised final draft. And when we get to our deep dive, Steve, you're going to see mm. that even though Roddenberry had taken a step back as the showrunner, 
to be the executive producer. He was still very involved. He came up with some really interesting ideas for Operation Annihilate. So that was dated February 13th. So the total cost for Operation Annihilate came out at $196,780, which brought it $11,780 over budget. The score was tracked by this point, so they did save some money there. The episode was directed by Herschel Daugherty, and he was a two-time Emmy nominee for General Electric Theater. He was the Directors Guild winner for the episode The Road That Led Afar of General Electric Theater. He also directed Wagon Train, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Thriller, Dr. Kildare, The Rat Patrol, Hawaii Five-O, and he returned to Star Trek for the third season episode, The Savage Curtain. But overall, Steve, what is your take on Operation Island. Love it, hate it, it's okay. What do you think? Well, it's it, it's funny. We, we've had lots of episodes where I've had to sort of reevaluate my opinion of them, some positively, some negatively. I think I always thought this episode was really cheesy. And honestly, I couldn't, even as a kid, those little creatures, I just thought they were the stupidest thing <laughs> maybe ever on Star Trek. I just hated them. And watching it this time, Man, I liked it a lot more than I expected. So, what, what made you like it more? Just well, I'm not going to tell you until we get there. <laughs> you're you're keeping me in suspense. Uh, I agree with you that it's an episode that I like more. It's still not an episode that I I I love. But in doing my uh, reassessment of this episode, especially when I sat down to rewatch it and 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 really examine it thoroughly, I did kind of have an epiphany on what makes this episode really work for me and and overcome many of its flaws, including, like you said, those creatures, the flying pancakes. You know, they, that, that part never really did it for me. But I, I did sort of sort of realize that it was uh, very much inspired by the puppet masters from Robert Heinlein mm. and also reminded me of Invasion of the Body Major, Snatchers, sure, of course. Of course. Um, but the thing about it that, that really... Uh, it impacted me too, and and not in a positive way. Was just how I would say unpleasant this episode is. It is, yeah. It's unpleasant. It's disturbing, and we will get into those reasons why. You know something, by the way. You've talked about the budget on every single episode of Enterprise Incidents, and I really want to know how unusual it was for a TV show to go over budget in this era. So if we manage to have Ralph Sinensky back on, I want to ask him this question because so the way film budgets and TV budgets generally work is you have your budget and you have a contingency, which means you take 10 or 15% of the budget because you know you're going to have overruns. But then in most film production that I know of, they still go 5 to 10% over budget. That's kind of expected. And so what I wonder is, is was that expected in the mid-60s or was that... Or is that really unusual? You must be in my head. Oh, really? You're in my head because, <laughs> you know, I, I did further notes when I was when I was delving into Operation Annihilate because it is the last episode of season one. And because you and I are going to do a separate special episode of Enterprise Incidents to assess the entire season, you know, our thoughts on season one, a recap, if you will. And in doing so, I was really getting into Lucille Ball's studio, Desilu. Mm which also produced the same year that Star Trek debuted. It was also the debut of Mission Impossible, 
which is a series that obviously people know the Tom Cruise movies, but it is a series that had a big impact, especially at the Emmys. And I'll get into that when we do our our, our recap mm. of season one. But that is also a series which went way over budget. Right. So Lucille Ball's little studio had these two challenging shows that had went way, way over budget. And that caused some very, very big problems. We'll get into all of yeah. Would you like to know some of the things going on in the world while they're filming this episode? What could be more important than filming the last episode of the first <laughs> season of Star Trek? Well, there's one that was maybe more important today than it was when it happened. Because on February 17th, they finally locked down the fine structure of RNA. Messenger RNA, which is... And what they determined was that this is in every single biological... Uh, thing on the planet earth every plant everything has this rna and of course messenger rna is what was used to create the covid vaccine so with this discovery in 67 is directly connected to saving lives today unbelievable wow um on february 18th the district attorney of new orleans jim garrison had a press conference where he revealed that he had spent eight thousand dollars of his city's budget investigating the Kennedy assassination and that he believed it was a conspiracy and that people in New Orleans were responsible for the death of John F. Kennedy. And that, of course, is the basis for the movie JFK. Oh, wow. That is a great movie. By the way, that's interesting to say that because this year is the 30th anniversary of that movie. Oh, I didn't know that. That's very interesting. On February 18th, after 18 years of searching, famed Nazi hunter Simon Weisenthal tracked down Franz Stangl in Brazil, a Nazi war criminal. He had been working in a Volkswagen factory since 1951 under his regular name, under Franz Stangl. Weisenthal found him, brought him back to West Germany. He stood trial for the murder of 900,000 Jews. What was, uh, so what was the outcome of that? He was sentenced to life in prison and died six months later. Mm, wow. Well, at least they got him. They got him. <laughs> uh, on the same day, Robert Oppenheimer died, who is the person probably most responsible for the development of the atomic bomb. Uh, we got a couple of births. On February 19th, Benicio Del Toro was born. On February 20th, Kurt Cobain and Lily Taylor, the actor, were both born. Well, Kurt Cobain, you know, it's funny because uh, this year, you know, recording this in 2021, this is the 30th anniversary of Nevermind. Oh, wow. Which, what a, I mean, that album absolutely holds up. I love Nevermind. Well, and changed the face of music for, you know, in a huge, huge way. I mean, you, I can remember the shift in the early 90s when oh, that yeah. started to happen. Flannel, baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, would you like to get in the show? Let's do it. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Steve, this, this is a... This is a bittersweet <laughs> feeling. But you know what all this means is we still have two more seasons yep. to go on Enterprise Incidents. But, yes, the, we, are, we are beginning our last deep dive for the last episode of season one. So take it away. Anything, Lieutenant? No, sir. I've tried every major transmitting station on Denver. Try GSK-783, subspace frequency three. But, sir, that's a call sign for private transmitter. I'm very well aware of that, Lieutenant. Try it. And then what we hear is that there's some pattern of some mass insanity that has gone from planet to planet starting 200 years ago and destroys entire civilizations. We don't know why. And the most recent ones were two years ago. And the next one in this line of progression through the galaxy is this planet Deneva. So it's very, very tense on the bridge. And once again, we're starting a Star Trek episode trying to contact something or somebody. 
Uh, and the signal from Denevin, which, you know, is going unanswered. And it kind of reminded me of the beginning of like a taste of Armageddon when they're trying mm, to get mm-hmm. in touch with the Mini R7 or the side of paradise when they're sure. approaching a Macron City 3. But the tension in this episode, not only is it palpable because they are approaching the planet where, you know, Kirk's family is, but this is also the first mission that Kirk has had since the devastating moment where he had to let the love of his life go at the end of City on the Edge of Forever. So let's just say that he's not in a great mood, and he has every reason to feel this way. It's funny. That is one of the connections I made this time, of course, that it never occurred to me before. But watching that with that in my brain changes the way the show feels. Completely. We're picking up a ship on our sensors, heading directly into the Denovan sun. He'll burn up. And they head follow after it and would try to get in a tractor beam. It's not it's too far away. It's getting hotter and hotter on the Enterprise. And you can see it's like what we saw in Arena where Kirk is going, keep going, and everyone else on the Enterprise is going, Hold on. We can't <laughs> yeah, do this. Scotty. Yeah. I love like whenever Scotty uh, you know, sort of like gives gives Kirk that look like, oh, not with my ship, you know. But it, you know what's <laughs> weird, and I think this is it's actually a flaw that's kind of fun, which is it seems as if Despite the fact that Scotty knows as much about the Enterprise as anybody, Kirk has some weird faith in his ship that it can do more, much more than what's on the technical specs. And why does he do that? Because he's a really smart guy. I guess he read so. all those books, and he's just like he's like a, an equal to Spock, as we've discussed mm-hmm. many, many times. You gotta, he's also an equal to Scotty, I guess, in some ways. I so here's I actually this is one where I almost I kind of disagree because. This is when I think he's just, this is going on gut. If this isn't that he did some math and realized that the hull actually is capable of sustaining a thousand extra degrees or something like that, I think he's just like, you can do it, baby. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, come on, baby. Give me all you got. (laughs) Um, And we get closer and closer to the sun. And at the last possible moment, when the hull temperature is at a thousand degrees, we hear from the Denovan ship. I get it. It's finally gone. And we all know that whatever this mass insanity is has reached this planet. And then McCoy walks up to Kirk and says, Jim, your brother Sam, his family, aren't they stationed on this planet? And there is the end of the teaser. Yeah. Uh, a very, very tense teaser. Yeah. Definitely up there with some of the better teasers of the original series. And interesting to note, because uh, I was mentioning all the different ways that the story evolved from outline to final draft. So when Dorothy Fontana took her, her hand at it, one of the things that she did was she moved the ship flying into the sun. Originally, it was in Act 1, and she actually moved it into the teaser because mm. Stan Robertson, who was the NBC executive in charge of, in, in charge of overseeing Star Trek – wanted as much action his feeling was and and this is at a time where there were only three networks whereas now you have so many different networks and channels and streaming services and cable channels and so on that you want to you got to grab them from the beginning or you'll lose them and they'll stay lost for the rest of the rest of that time period so he was he was smart to insist on on moving more action to the teaser and dorothy fontana Followed suit. Not only do I think it's really smart, but I think this is where an executive and a good writer work well together. Because what the executive thinking, I just want some action. But if you just put the action in and didn't have the emotional component, we wouldn't be involved the way we are. It's something is going on with Kirk. 
What is this private transmitter? What is what exactly is happening that that's happening simultaneously? Because in good screenwriting, you're never just doing one thing. Like we want to establish this idea that there's mass insanity. We want to establish this guy that's going into the sun and what happens with that. We want to create a threat on the enterprise and we want to create this emotional component that gets hit at the end. We're doing all of those things at once, not just having an action sequence. Captain, I made contact with your private transmitter, sir. Put it on audio. Please hurry. Help us. I don't have much time. They'll know. Please, please help us. this is Jim on the Enterprise. But she's gone. So the contact is lost. And it's not the first time that Kirk has kind of come down on Uhura. Yeah. But in this in this one, he comes down on her particularly hard. I'm not interested in your excuses, Lieutenant. Reestablish contact with that transmitter. And the way she responds to him. It's great. Is great. Like, remember in Naked Time. Please try and cut him off. Sir, if I could cut him off, don't you think I... This one, she is just totally calm. They stop broadcasting immediately. They do not acknowledge my contact signal. But Michelle Nichols was absolutely perfect in this scene. But now we, we know that Kirk's brother, Sam Kirk, only Jim calls him Sam. And we learned that from Little Little Girls Made That's Of. That's right. In which uh, it was referred to as that he had two sons, not just one mm. like he does in this episode. But he is a research biologist who was on Deneva with his wife and one son. Peter Kirk. Uh, and we decide that we're going to beam down. We're in the transporter room. We're setting our phasers to stun. And Kirk tells a new yeoman, who I don't think we've seen before, that uh, he wants a complete transcript of everything that's happened. Okay, so this is Yeoman Zara, played by Marishka. That's her name, Marishka. She has one name, like Madonna. Okay. This is another in a line of post-Ran Yeoman who came and went right. from one episode. Again, this is not something I thought about and the other 300 times I've seen this episode. But watching this, I went, yeah, that would have been Rand. Yeah. It's interesting that they're so locked into this idea that this rank, Yeoman, is feminine. Yeah, because in current times, it was a male, and I guess in the in the 23rd century, every yeoman that we've seen on, yeah, on the weird. Bridge of the Enterprise, it's, it's a female. Yeah. Well, and what's really weird is I bet if we said that to the two genes, they wouldn't have even thought about it. You know what I mean? They th It's like, uh, at the time, a what we would call a flight attendant was called a stewardess, right. and they were all women, mm -hmm. because that was considered a woman's job. You know? and now, flight attendants are men and women, yep. and but, but the fact that that, that the two genes were casting women in prominent right. roles. And women I, of I color, was, yeah. was great. Yeah, you know. absolutely. Uh, and we beam down. I really love this location. I think this location is really cool. This location is the TRW Space and Defense Group campus in Redondo Beach, California, which is now called the Northrop Grumman Space Technology Headquarters. So this was filmed on location, and they, start, they started filming this moment on day two of filming mm. Operation Annihilate. I think there's something really cool when you can find a real location that looks a little futuristic. I feel so much more locked into a reality than when you're on a back lot. Absolutely. You know? And by the way, after all this time, after all these decades, that still looks like a futuristic location. It does. It does. Absolutely. There are almost a million inhabitants of Denver. There's more than 100,000 in this city alone. Where is everyone? And Kirk knows where his brother's lab is. He knows we got a signal from there, so they're going to head in that direction. And then this mob of angry guys with weird giant kind of weapons are come yelling at them that they don't want them here. Those clubs look familiar. One of them was used by Kirk when he was about to uh, taunt 
Spock in this side of paradise oh. in the transporter room. Oh, good, good. But, so these four, these poor, four inhabitants of Deneva are running towards the landing party, brandishing their weapons, but at the same time telling them, go away, we don't want to hurt you. And so their actions are not consistent with their words. Stand by to fire. Fire. They stun the Denevans. Which looks really, I like the posing, the whole way that shot is set up when they stun them. Now this episode is the source of not just one, but two bloopers that made it onto the world-famous blooper reel that was shown at conventions for many, many decades. The blooper reel has been transferred so many times that the quality of the blooper reel, is it's so faded that it's really, really hard to see, but you can make it out. So at this point, when the landing party were firing their phasers, they said fire, and they started using their phaser ones as electric razors. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I remember that. That's hilarious. There's something wrong, Jim. Unconscious like this, there should be just routine autonomic activity. But I'm getting a very high reading, as though even in their unconscious state, they're being violently stimulated. And we hear a scream go into his brother's quarters and there is a woman holding up a plate like against a vent or something which immediately made me think of poltergeist of close encounters of (laughs) you know and all the people that made those shows they had to have watched star trek well i gotta say joan swift who plays aurel and kirk she her performance here is so committed Mm -hmm. so she is so hysterical that that it was it was hard for her to watch like she's watching her in agony and so hysterical, you know, for the rest of her time on the screen. I mean, she really yeah. goes to 11, so to speak. Uh, that's one of the things that makes the episode so effective. But it's also like another episode that I'll get to. It's a, it's a little hard to watch. And she is screaming, obviously in pain. And then finally, McCoy sedates her. They put her in a chair. And then McCoy says, is this your brother, Jim? Okay, this is what the pause button was used for. For years when you were watching this episode in syndication, or maybe like me, you recorded the episode on your cassette recorder. Right. But when videotapes came out, certainly when DVDs and Blu-rays are now streaming, every time I watch this episode, I always pause on this moment. Because Jim's brother, Sam Kirk, when Jim Kirk turns the body over for a split second... You see the person's face, and he's got a mustache. The body of Sam Kirk is played by an up-and-coming actor named William Shatner. It's so so funny because for years I didn't know that, and then I had the same thing where there was one moment when I finally had a videotape or something I could pause. I went, wait a minute. Because I just didn't know. I didn't know that. And, and it's just a great little, that's a great little detail. That must have been fun. Like, I wish there was sort of a backstory. Maybe there is a backstory yeah. to this. Uh, if you if you know the backstory, please hit us up on Facebook and Twitter and let us know what the backstory is. But I love that, that William Shatner goes, I'll do it. I'm sh- I, I mean, of course that's what happened. Of course Shatner said, hey, I should play my dead brother. I should play my brother. And yeah. what's so funny, my note right here is exactly what you said, which is, Man, this is right after City of the Edge of Forever. He just was responsible for the death of the love of his life. And a few days later, a week later, a month later, he finds the dead body of his brother. I mean, you hit it on the head. It's not just that he lost the love of his life, that he was responsible for the death 
of the love of his life. And then, whether, like you said, it's the next day or a month later, now he's facing deeper personal stakes. I think he's still in shock over the death of Edith, of Edith Cure. Well, and this is why I say Kirk is a tragic figure, which I never understood as because he was just my hero. And now I go, oh, my God, look at all of the horrible, difficult, painful things he's had to go through just in the first season. And also... Look at the painful experience that William Shatner had to go through oh, in the that's first right. season that's right. with the Death tragic and, yeah. and sudden passing of his father during their yeah. during the making of Devil in the Dark. Well, and he's wasn't he having marital problems yeah. too at the yeah. same time? The toll that that must have taken on him doing a series like this in which he's like the lead actor, he's in every scene and carrying the show next to Leonard Nimoy and then you know then he loses his father and and that his marriage was not working. I mean, that, that's got to take a toll. But in, in the course of Captain Kirk's evolution, ha- having these very, very deep personal things happen after the death of, of Edith Cure. I mean, that's just got to be such shock. And now he has to deal with this. I bet if you ask Shatner this question, which I probably don't, wouldn't think that you should, I bet he would say that playing Captain Kirk was a relief. I bet he looked forward to going and being in the world of Captain Kirk and being able to be someone who was decisive, who took control of their life and their situation. When, because sometimes, I mean, you know, this is the sometimes things are crappy in your life and you have things that you turn to that give you solace. And I bet Kirk gave him solace. Well, I will say that, that during the period of time that we've been recording this podcast, turning to Star Trek and turning to these deep, deep dives and these discussions with you have been extremely cathartic. Yeah. So I will agree with that 100%. It is my brother. was my brother. I'm sorry, John. The boy is unconscious, but he's still alive. And McCoy's going to take him back to the ship. And Spock comes over, and you can see Kirk dealing with what he has to deal with. But the thing is, Spock and Kirk share a look first. Yeah, like absolutely. A, Spock takes a beat. Like, he's like, what do I say? Captain, I understand how you know. Yes. Yes, Mr. And he kind of waves it away, you know? Hmm? And by the way, when we were talking about sitting on the edge of forever, and when they come back through the Guardian, no one says anything for a few beats there. And both Spock and McCoy are both looking at Kirk, not knowing what to say. There are no words. And they're both thinking different things, by the way, at that point. And now here Spock is at another point where he doesn't know what to say, tries to offer his condolences. And like you said, you know, Kirk just said, yeah, yes, thank you, Ms. Spock, and keeps him going. But so, so Peter Kirk, the unconscious young boy, that's a Craig Hundley. Does he look familiar? Yeah, he's in. Uh, he's later on in my least favorite Star Trek episode of all time. He's uh, isn't he in, in, in the Children Shall Lead? Yes, he is. Yeah. He is the head kid. Yeah, in, in, and the Children Shall Lead. And uh, I agree, that's definitely one of the worst episodes of all time. Uh, I, I'm dreading that episode. Frankly, <laughs> I'm actually looking forward to it because you're dreading it. Because uh, that'll be a fun one. Uh, because we're both dreading it. But did you know? And this is this is. For, and I didn't know this. For years and years and years, uh, I would say in 2011 or 2012, it might have been 2011, I went to an event at the Arclight Theater in Hollywood, which is hopefully going to reopen yeah, soon. Yeah, I hope so. And it was, a, it was a screening of Star Trek The Motion Picture, mm. followed by a panel discussion led by Jeff Bond about the music of Star Trek The Motion Picture. And some guy walks out wearing the outfit, an outfit that looks just like the one that Craig Hundley wore in And the Children Shall Leave. The, the striped shirt. The, yeah. yeah. 
So I'm going, wait, that that is the actor wow. who played the kid in, and the children, shall we? And he also played Peter Kirk. But did you know that Craig Hunley is an L.A. studio session musician, an electronic music composer, and working under the name Craig Huxley, he created the Blaster Beam, a stringed instrument responsible for the V'ger bass blasts in Jerry Goldsmith's score for Star Trek The Motion Picture. You know that, that sort of Oh, guitar? I can hear it right now. Yeah, yeah. That you can hear it bow, right now. Yeah, sure. No, I had no idea that was him. That's so amazing. He created that thing. Like, I just thought that his involvement with Star Trek was playing these two characters in the original series, but he was responsible for, like, such a defining sound of Jerry Goldsmith's score. He played that, like, you know, guitar-y wow. kind of That's bass crazy. thing. And he was doing the interview in, this, uh, in the theater as a, as a middle-aged man that wearing is, the outfit that he wore in and the, that, children, uh, and the children shall leave, which was kind of fun. That is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> that, that is awesome. And you know what's funny? We were just talking about Shatner. Maybe he was finding some solace in doing the job. Is that that's actually what Kirk does right in this moment? Is Spock, there's some moment of sort of sympathy, and he goes, We have a job to do. You heard my sister in law say something about they being here. Your guess. Notice the ventilator, Captain. Apparently, they were trying to keep something outside from getting in. But they don't have, see any harmful life forms here. Their sensors haven't picked up anything. And McCoy is ready to beam up, and he tells Kirk, I'd like you to be on board when your sister in law regains consciousness. We're in sick bay. Nurse Chapel is there. I think having her in this episode is a great choice. Nurse Chapel being in this episode is another touch of DC Fontana. She put her in the episode. And in earlier versions, Arellan was not Kirk's sister-in-law. Like, mm. Kirk's family was not part of the mm. story of Operation Annihilate. And in fact, in the version of Operation Annihilate that James Blish adapted for those Star Trek-numbered books that came out in the late 60s and 70s, because he was working from an earlier version, that whole thing about Kirk's family was also not in the James Blish adaptation. But Joan Swift, who plays Aurel and Kirk, is now in sick bay. And okay, so this is what I was alluding to mm. earlier in our discussion about how how hard it was to watch Aurel and Kirk writhe in agony and in pain. And Joan Swift's performance was so so effective that it makes the scene hard to watch and it, and again this is something that comes out of doing these deep dives with you is tying things together tying episodes together and it made me think of uh dr simon van gelder literally in my notes in dagger of yeah. the mind yep a hundred percent well and we have two a it's that taking it to 11 as you said and it's also the I am trying to say a thing, and I am fighting pain, and the pain gets worse the more I try to do this thing. Absolutely. The mind control that these parasites are using to control the humans is very similar to you know when Van Gelder is trying to answer like what his name yeah. is, and he's writhing in, in yeah. such pain. But I, I would say that uh, Morgan Woodward's performance is, is still like it the— It is. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal, and it's so hard to watch and so uncomfortable, but so, so very good. And— Look for a for a TV series in nineteen now sixty seven to to have this kind of, of performance uh, and such seriousness. I mean, it's a very 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 serious episode. 
is is a testament to just how great Star Trek still is. And she is tr- desperately trying to get out the information, and we hear little snippets. We hear they came eight months ago. <sighs> things horrible things. And Kirk is trying to find out what are you talking about? What kind of things? And I think this line is so key. Not the ship's crew's fault. Even then, she understands because, spoiler alert, what's happening is there are these one cell creatures that land on you and they take over you and they cause pain if you don't do what they want. And they are using humans to spread themselves around the galaxy. And so the ship's crew were infected by these things and being forced to fly their ship to Deneva. And even in her agony, even in this moment, she's compassionate enough to say, it's not their fault. Very, very interesting point. I did not pick that up. And I mentioned how how this was like Robert Heinlein's The Puppet Masters and also Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But it is also like uh, in early versions of This Side of Paradise when it was called The Way of the Spores. Mm. It was a similar thing where the spores were part of a larger being and right. they were all acting as, as one complete being. And, and in, in some ways it also, even though there is no physical and plan in the body for turn of the archons where they are also uh, one complete thing working you know they're all part of landrew uh, but this is now like third time that we're we're seeing this kind of like collective mm-hmm. thing i mean even though in the side of paradise they dropped the the unity thing and the spores were not not all tied together but it's it's something that has now been been broached by the starker writers for a few times in just one season. Well, and it's it's sort of what I was saying uh, last a few weeks ago in Errand of Mercy, which is the idea that we're looking at the same kind of a thing, but with a slightly different flavor or a different angle, because the spores in this side of paradise are to some degree, which we don't know, may or may not be controlling, whatever that means, the people, but they're doing it entirely positively. So they're making you feel great. Whereas these things are giving you, are torturing you unless they do what they want. And so it gives us a chance to feel differently and kind of examine a thing from a different angle. And the pain is building and building. And McCoy is picking up on the Van Gelder thing, which is it's like she's fighting to get her answers out. And yep. something's using pain to stop her. They use it to control us. They're forcing us to build ships for them. <sighs> Don't let them! Don't let them go any further! One ear-piercing scream and one last burst of agony in defiance of the parasite inside of her, and she dies. And Kirk looks up at the monitor, sees all the yep. all the readings just drop to zero. And just after losing his brother, he's now lost his sister-in-law. And I'm going to say this thing. I've said it before. Dr. McCoy is the worst doctor in the world. Oh, he that, literally does matter. nothing. He does nothing. There's no CPR. He doesn't try to get her heart started again. He doesn't do anything. There's uh, just oh, like, yeah. oh, he's, I guess she's dead. Yeah, yeah. It's a good point. I never <laughs> noticed seen that. It, well, we've seen it over and over again. We saw it in Miri. We saw it a whole bunch of times where the he's dead, Jim. It's like, no, doctors have stuff they can do usually to try to save a life. My brother's son. I'll do everything I can, Jim, to save him. And Kirk nods and walks out. Again, the tragedy this guy walks around with is huge. Kirk beams back down to the planet. Things continue to be extraordinarily quiet. But they've heard some kind of noise, and we're going to go check it out. Again, there's that great device, which we have talked about before, where you hear them. Yeah. 
before you see them. Hear this like buzzing sound, like it's a swarm. And we go into this room, camera pulls back, and now we get to see them. Uh, you get to hear them. Yeah, the sound is good. I like the sound design. The sa- and it's such a great effect because it was disturbing to see this. I think the idea of it is disturbing. And I think the sound is design is good. I think, and particularly when they start flying around on strings, it's just, it's the worst. They're, yeah, okay. they're just terrible. <laughs> just so bad. And you could see the actor, like remember we were talking in Devil in the Dark how Nimoy just, even though it's a big shaggy carpet, that he's he's 100% committed to doing this full on. I think in this scene when they're ducking those things, you could see the actors going, oh, come on. I, I, I will say, okay, so first of all, the parasites were designed by Wa Chang, and they were actually given a name in one of those Star Trek books, the Medical Science Manual, and they were called Blastoneurons. And the sounds, of the sound effect, are you ready for, you know what the sound effect actually is? Oh, tell me. So sound editor Douglas Grindstaff said that the sounds were kisses. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I can see that. Yeah, so, I can see that. So the sounds of the parasites are kisses. By the way, sound design and listening to sound recorders and what they figured out things are is one of the most fascinating things. Uh, we've got to hit a lot of them on the cinephiles, and I'll tell you just uh, one is that you remember when the T-1000 in Terminator 2 goes through the bars of the jail cell and the sound kind of goes like yeah. that? Uh-huh, sure. Dog food coming out of a can. Oh, very interesting. And from now on, every time you watch that scene, you're going to hear it. And you're going to go, yeah, that's dog that's food coming dog out of a can. Yeah. <laughs> um, you want to know what I think the blasto neurons, or whatever you call them, look like? What? It looks like fake vomit, you know, that you put on like as a prank. They're like, you've seen that stuff. It, they're just terrible. Yeah. Like when they were sticking to the walls. And you heard the sound. In the wide the shot, I'm okay with it. Like, yeah. that was like, well, that was really kind of scary. But when they start flying around and they're ducking, like, yeah, then it, it got a little silly. And I was like, trying to hold back laughter a little bit. Well, and this goes to, I wish they had used, you know, the Jaws principle, which of course Jaws hadn't been made yet. But the more you show them, the worse they get. Yeah, Is that you're right. as, li- as little as you could possibly show them. Like, for instance, make that room dark. Because they already don't like light. That's really key. But And they say, and this is a key point in the actual plot of the show, but that room is fairly well lit. That's a good point. If you had made that really dark and you could see something moving in the shadows but couldn't quite see what it was, it'd be way scarier. I'm surprised actually that Finnerman, Jerry Finnerman, didn't take the opportunity to make the lighting more dramatic like he did with Devil in the Dark or what a little girl's made of in the caves. It could have been time because... Lighting things in a dark way where things just kind of stand out, that takes longer to light. That's true. To get it just right. And also, they, they're tired. You know, 29 episodes in a season, that's nuts. Okay, that, that's a really good point. Like, like we have, in a, in a very quick period of time, gone through the entire first season, including The Cage. Like, they did this with an episodic series that had never been done before. So, yeah, yeah. they must have been exhausted well and it's just after city on the edge of forever which is beautifully lit it has lots of attention to detail um but they shoot one with a phaser they shoot it a lot it finally drops down not only should it have been destroyed by our phasers it does not even register on my tricorder captain doesn't even look real it is not life as we know or understand it but it is obviously alive. It exists. To close in here, maybe a trap. Let's move out. And we start to head out, and that thing flies at Spock and hits him in the back. And the way Nimoy, like, reacts to that, like, helpless, and then when the rest of the landing party tries to tries to take it off of him, and Kirk swings him around and, and, and hugs him. Yeah. 
and the look on Nimoy's face, like that is a powerful way to end the first act of this episode. And this is also the scene of blooper number two okay. from this episode. So in the scene when they're when they're going up the stairs and they're they're moving out of the area and the parasite, uh, the creature lands on, on Leonard Nimoy's back. <laughs> in the blooper, <laughs> the creature lands on his butt. <laughs> it lands on his butt. And the best thing about that was <laughs> Nimoy turns around and looks up in the, the, the rafters and, and, and like points up at mm. the guy like, hey, watch it, buddy. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Were the Star Trek bloopers the first bloopers you ever saw? Yes, they are. Me too. Absolutely. 100%. I don't think I... And this is for people today. We've all seen bloopers. You always see bloopers. I, I, we didn't know that bloopers were a thing. You know but what I mean? I thought like when I, when I saw the bloopers for the first time at the first Star Trek convention I ever went to in 1979, I just remember one big room in the Philadelphia Center Hotel at 17th and JFK, and it was packed. Like the, right. It was full room. And people were laughing their butts off at these bloopers. And this this one I remember vividly seeing in that room for the right. first time. We're in Act 2, and McCoy and Chapel are performing surgery on Spock, who's groaning. And what we hear is... That's the second time he's come out of... Either he's fighting us, or something inside of him is fighting us. The readings have never looked like that before, not even on Mr. Spock. What I love about Chapel being here, and I wish they had done one or two more moments, is that she's in love with Spock. That's why it's important that she's here. And we kind of see it in this next moment, but I wish we had a little bit more. McCoy says, let's close him up. Doctor, that's not all you're going to do. Miss Chapel. Doctor, there is more of it in him entwined all through his body. Miss Chapel, if you cannot assist me as required, call another nurse in here. But do one or the other now. So this made me think of that line in Star Trek The Motion Picture, where when they first beam McCoy on the Enterprise, and he's got that full Oh, and beard. Chapel's a doctor now. Yeah, Chapel's an MD now. I'm going to need a top nurse, not a doctor who argued every little diagnosis with me. He probably redesigned the whole sick bay, too. I know engineers. They love to change things. But I agree with you. It would have been a greater moment for Nigel Barrett to to deliver more. But I but I do think that the love that she has for Spock is in, is in her reaction to McCoy yeah. saying, let's close him up. Well, you know what would be great? Okay, I'm rewriting this a little bit. You have exactly the moment it is, it is. And McCoy threatens her. And she still doesn't do anything. And then McCoy, on a beat, says, Christine, that's all we can do. Bingo. And yep. then you would have just a little bit more. That would have gone whole, a whole lot further, too, in the emotion. We're on the bridge. McCoy comes in in his kind of scrubs. He's got a weird jar. And Kirk asks how he is. And McCoy, McCoy is at such a loss throughout this entire episode. Be very frank, Jim. I don't know that I can do anything for Spock or your nephew. Oh, boy. And now here's the other thing that Dorothy Fontana added to, to the story. So the earlier versions, the creatures entered the person's body, like mm. in full. Fontana changed it so that the creature stung the human host so that the parasite entered through the stinger. You want to know something crazy? I was, de I was debating when I would bring this up, but... This is a real thing in our world, in the natural world. So there's a kind of parasite that will land on a caterpillar and lay its eggs in the caterpillar. It will actually control the caterpillar's actions. The eggs will hatch, turn into larvae, and eat their way out of the caterpillar. Oh. The worst one is there's a kind of wasp that will land on a cockroach. They'll fight. The wasp will sting him in its belly, which paralyzes the cockroach. The wasp will turn the cockroach over, climb on its head, 
drive their stinger into its brain. Then the cockroach will get up as a zombie, essentially totally controlled by the wasp. The wasp will lay its eggs in the cockroach. And this is really gross. (laughs) The eggs will hatch into larva and they know which organs within the cockroach to eat that it stays alive wandering around until finally the larva are grow enough to get out of the cockroach and they eat the so rest that's, of them. So that's happening already. That is happening in our world right Unbelievable. now. Unbelievable. And there's wow. tons of sto- there's actually a whole bunch of stories of parasites. You know, and this is why I kind of hit said it a little bit when we were talking about the spores in uh this side of paradise. There's all sorts of evidence of various things that are in your body that actually, when you go like, man, I could really go for a hamburger. Well, that actually might be because the bacteria living in your gut is telling you, hamburger. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. like it might not entirely be you that's making the decisions you think you're making. Um, anyway, wow. <laughs> um, and, and what we hear is that he took this little like stinger out, but it's all entwined throughout his nervous system. There is no way you can operate on him. And when his nephew wakes up, he's going to go through exactly the same thing. By the way, his the outfit that McCoy is wearing, this is the only time we've seen oh. McCoy wear a uniform that looks a lot like some of the workers use in the lower decks of the Enterprise. Like he's not wearing that alternate version of his right. blue shirt, you know, the short sleeve right. one. Like it looks like he's... You know, it's the only time we saw McCoy wear this in the original series. Um, I love stuff like that, and I always wonder why you didn't bring it back. Recommendations. I'm sorry, Jim. The lab, the science departments, we're all stumped. McCoy is so helpless. Yeah. And and he also is basically telling Kirk, I can't help your nephew, and I can't help your best friend. We're back in sickbay. Spock is struggling with something. No. And he sits up. Shaking his head as if he's trying to shake something off. No, I won't. So one of the things that made this episode much better than I had remembered it, just watch Nimoy. He's so good at playing the levels of what's happening to him. And right now he is very weakly trying to fight against this thing and losing. I agree completely. In fact, I was going to bring this up later, but I'm going to bring it up now. What does this performance remind you of? Um, Naked Time? A mock time. Oh, mock time. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Because this episode, Spock is in pain and the human side of him wants to express that emotion and scream in pain. But his Vulcan side is keeping his human side in check. Same thing with a mock time. The emotion that is surging through his uh, veins because of the pond far and a mock time, his human side wants to express that emotion. But his Vulcan side is keeping the emotion in check. And the way that Nimoy delivers his performance in a mock time, I always felt like that was one of his very, very best performances as Spock because you see that he's – it's an added layer to his performance because of the way he is trying to suppress his emotion. And rewatching Operation Annihilate made me go, wait a minute. This is exactly what he will eventually do in season two's of mock time, but he's doing it in season one's Operation Annihilate, and he's doing it perfectly. I mean he's – at this point, he's kind of losing that struggle, as we're going to see in a moment. But Nimoy's performance is phenomenal. So it's funny. I'm, now I'm even more lo- – not that I wasn't looking forward to a mock time anyway, but I actually kind of disagree because I think all Vulcans go through this thing. I think it's the Vulcan side that's having the emotions. You that's know? a good point too. Um, yeah. but, so, but his human side is, is – de- Definitely uh, a variable in there. Yes, absolutely. But – that's a, we got we got a deep dive coming <laughs> we, later. We're not we're not ready for that one. Rich, this is sick bay. 
Tell Dr. McCoy Mr. Spock just left here. He's delirious, possibly dangerous. All deck, security alert. Locate and restrain Mr. Spock. Right at that moment, as McCoy gets to the lift, Spock appears. Let's take shit, Spock. Tosses Sulu. And now we have all of the stuntman versions of our crew trying to restrain Spock. I love the way they choreograph this. This is, this scene reminds me uh, of a scene in the third season's uh, Is There in Truth yeah, and Beauty? Yeah, totally. See, this is one of the things about like when I was younger, when I was a kid and I was just getting into Star Trek. Moments like this are actually why I was a little bit afraid of Spock. Mm. Like the first episode I ever saw, oh, I told it was you, Mirror, was Mirror, Mirror. Mirror. Yeah. So, you know, like Spock is a formidable opponent yeah. in Mirror, Mirror, but he's still Spock, but he's using the agonizer. I mean, he's very, very strong. That scene in the sick bay. And in Is There in Truth No Beauty, he's, you know, basically throwing Goes around crazy, the bridge yeah. officers. And now here he is doing the same thing in Operation Annihilate. And just moments like this, I really was kind of afraid of Spock, he scared me a little. It's funny, I never had that reaction. I always loved, it. and this I even love more. So look how strong he is. I love, by the way, that you could see him trying to go for the neck pinch on Kirk, and they're holding. And you could see Shatner knows, or Kirk knows, that's what he's going for, and trying to hold him back. Um, and they finally get him down. McCoy comes in with the hypo, and we knock him out. The K three indicator registers a level of pain. Now watch it as I turn it on. And he turns it on, and it goes right through the roof. And Spock groans. Now that's what he's been going through. I've never seen anything like it. No wonder the poor devils go mad. You see Spock straining. You see that he is in restraints. And then his eyes open. And it's a completely different Spock. Dr. McCoy. Captain. Spock. His restraints will no longer be necessary. Seeing Nimoy regain his composure. Again, Nimoy's performance in this episode is... Overlooked, underrated, and rewatching this just made me go, wow, Nimoy really is right on point with the, the different levels of emotion and reining it back in. What's so good about it is that this might be a conversation you have with the director and maybe Nimoy figure this all on his own. But what you have to do is decide, well, how, how bad is it right at this moment? How bad is it at this moment? How much am I able to control it? How much will is it taking to control it? And that varies throughout the entire show. It's never that you look at him and go, oh, he's fine. You never think that. It's always, oh, it's really hard for him right now. Oh, he's keeping it together. Oh, now he's kind of knocked it down and he's really keeping it together. Now he's starting to lose it. You know, like it, it, it goes through in waves and it's specifically related to each moment in the show. It's so interesting to, to watch like when you really, if you're going to watch this episode and, and really tune into what Nimoy is doing, really tune into his performance and like sort of be in his head. I, I mean, he's so great at it. I apologize for my weakness earlier when I tried to take control of the ship. I simply did not understand. What is there to understand, Mr. Spock? I'm a Vulcan doctor. Pain is a thing of the mind. Can I tell you, Scott, how that line truly influenced me? I thought pain is a thing of the mind my entire life, you know, and I'm pretty good at dealing with partially from doing like martial arts and stuff where you're in like a joint lock. And I literally have that thought. Let's just put that aside. Put that pain aside. Interesting. Um, yeah, definitely. And, it, and it's definitely true up to a certain point. Like there's all sorts of religion, you know, like whether it's walking across hot coals or there's a, a society, I forget if it's Sikh or where they put needles through their cheeks and you'll see them totally have no pain response. They've even hooked people up so you can see brainwave function while they do this. And there's no spike in where you would see normally pain when they're do when they're sticking a needle through their cheek. Like we actually are capable to some degree of 
putting pain aside, like Spock is doing in this scene. I'll have to practice that. The way I do it, this is, I might, I might not put this in, is I try to mentally turn the pain I'm feeling into heat. It's just warm. Interesting. Okay. And it kind of works. That, I'll have to give I'll it a try. You, when I had a herniated disc in my back, it didn't work. It was, the pain was so terrible, and there was no... It was really hard. I couldn't put my brain in a place where I could deal with the pain. That's how terrible it was. You're only half Vulcan. What about the human half here? It is proving to be an inconvenience, <laughs> but it is manageable. The creature, with all of its thousands of parts, even now, is pressuring me. And you can see in his performance that that is exactly what's happening. And Kirk has to make the decision of whether or not to free him. Because on the one hand, he totally needs Spock. And on the other hand, can he trust him? The guy just tried to take over the ship. We'll keep you confined for a while longer. If you can maintain control, we'll see. He turns to McCoy and says, my nephew, if he regains consciousness, will he go through that? Yes. Helps them. I don't care what it takes or costs. You've got to help them. So his nephew and now his closest friend. And what about the one million plus colonists on Dedham? Well, that's what's great about McCoy in this moment. McCoy basically goes, look, I'm really sorry that your friend, people you care about, this is happening. million people down there. That's mm -hmm. your job. That's right. And I think based on what we hear happening later in the episode, Kirk, and this is what we admire about him, he really listens to that and he takes that in. Maybe even farther than McCoy would have wanted him to, based on what he's thinking about. And now Spock's alone. I am a Vulcan. I am a Vulcan. There is no pain. And he breaks free from the restraints. And now we're in the transporter room. And Spock walks in in full uniform. Mm -hmm. And he confronts Scotty and Mr. Leslie. There's a fight that breaks out. Because uh, Spock is going to beam down, and Scotty is like, no, you're not. So Spock uses the FSNP, the famous Spock neck pinch, right. on Leslie. And then Scotty gets up from the scuffle, and he holds his phaser on Mr. Spock. Freeze right there, Mr. Spock. Or I'll put you to sleep for sure. He was smart. He's like... He held a phaser on Mr. Yeah. Spock. He's not going to try and fight him fist to fist. This is actually a great scene for Scotty. Yep. And James Doohan was terrific in this scene. Well, it seems like at this point, we talked about it in Taste of Armageddon. We talked about it a bunch. Is that clearly the network and they decided, oh, we can really use this guy. This is Mr. Scott in the transporter room. Get me the captain. Kirk comes down and Spock is logical, of course. One of the creatures will have to be captured and analyzed, Captain. We did not have a clear opportunity to do so earlier when I was attacked. Since my nervous system is already affected, as you pointed out, Doctor, I don't believe they could do much more to me. So the thing I never noticed about the scene is that Leslie is still in the transporter room. You know, it's after he regains consciousness. Mm. You see that this Leslie, played by Eddie Paskey, he rubs his shoulder where Spock pinched his neck mm. i never noticed that in all these decades i didn't notice it either but but you see yeah eddie paskey you know he had very very little dialogue but he motions to his to his shoulder mm. where where spock pinched him and i was like oh okay so we beam spock down and then we're in the corridor with mccoy and kirk and mccoy says jim that man is sick and don't give me any damnable logic about him being the only man for the job and i love kirk's response i don't have to bones we both know he is 
Yep, great line. Well, and this is the thing is that I think McCoy understands what his role is sometimes, you know what I mean? But will accept the logic of the situation, which I think he does here. Um, We're on the planet. Spock's got like his little red toolbox, (laughs) you know, and he's walking along and we see a dude with an even weirder, big, some kind of uh, weapon slash tool hiding behind uh, like a pillar. And he jumps out, takes a swing at him. Spock dodges, draws his phaser. The phaser gets knocked out of his hand. They're staring at each other. And that is the end of that, too. I think that was purely added because of like, we need a cliffhanger. We need a thing at the end of Act 2. And this is what they came up with. We come back in Act 3, right to the same spot. Another, He ducks the thing. FSNP. Guy goes down. Second time in one episode. And then, right after he knocks out this guy... The creature inside him brings the pain to the maximum. And I love that this is just a great use of a location. They found this red tile wall to put him up against while he writhes in pain and tries to get it under control. Bach goes back into that room where the creatures were on the uh, the ceiling and he shoots one of, th- one of them, pulls out his weird loose sight grabby thing and grabs one of the creatures uh, and takes it away. My, now, my, my question, and this is something that I never noticed or never thought about watching Operation Annihilate. So in Devil in the Dark, it's firmly established that Phaser 2 is much more powerful yes. than Phaser 1. And it was only Phaser 2 which was able to injure the Horda, not kill it, but injure it, whereas Phaser 1 had no effect on all. So Spock is going back into sort of the uh, the lion's den here where all the uh, parasites were, and he's using Phaser 1. So why didn't he use Phaser 2? It's more powerful. Okay. The other thing that I noticed is this, and this is just, it's just an observation, but when the landing party is in the room before and they shoot at the creatures and they fly away, so Spock comes back and he shoots one of the creatures with his phaser to grab it, take it aboard the Enterprise. But if you notice, the creatures didn't fly away this time mm. because they are like, oh, this thing is not a threat at all. We can handle this. Because right. they even said that there was like hardly any effect on the creatures when they shot them the first time. Right. I think phaser one and phaser two are one of the, one of the many things that they really never quite figured out. You know what I mean? Like, they, like what exactly is the difference? How powerful? Because we know that Phaser 1 can kill people, you know? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely I mean, can. But all, all that was established was that Phaser 2 is more powerful right. than Phaser 1. Well, and it's weird. Like, they just said, oh, here's a Phaser. You know, and, and I get it, too. It's 29 episodes. They don't have, the, you know, it's like now with a show like Discovery, they put out like 10 or 12 episodes, whatever it is. They have a whole year to think about it. They have a big staff. They got a lot of people worrying about all these things. And, you know, original Star Trek didn't have that. Uh, we're back on the Enterprise. We're in the lab. And Spock calls Kirk and McCoy in. He's got the creature in some little case. Um, and I love that as they come in, McCoy steps behind Spock and starts examining him. So one of the things that I think this scene is a good example is that you could have two characters who disagree and both say something that is absolutely true. Spock says, Doctor, your medical skill and curiosity are quite admirable, but I assure you I'm all right. Which is true up to a certain point. And McCoy says, You may be controlling the pain, Mr. Spock, but you're far from all right. These are both true statements, and they disagree. And this is, uh, it's funny, I, I know the subject of MASH has come up, another one of my favorite shows. There's, MASH has kind of two halves. There's the first half, where Larry Gelbart was there, and you had Frank Burns. Uh, and That's funnier. 
it's funnier and I like it less. I'm a second half Matt. I love them. They're both. They're all great. Is that the difference is, is that Frank Burns is an incompetent bad guy. Winchester is an arrogant, great surgeon. In later MASH, it's we're all working towards the same goal and we frequently disagree. And early MASHes, there's this idiot here who we all hate. And later MASH is more like Star Trek for me, is that we can disagree, but we're all really competent and working towards mm-hmm. the same goal. Mm-hmm. That's, Interesting. That's what I really like. Interesting. Yeah, I, I like MASH not as much. I'm not as into it as you are, but I, I completely agree with that observation. So you and I are not going to do a deep dive on the 11 seasons of MASH. Not, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other things that really elevated this episode for me is the way that this further establishes the dynamic yeah. and the relationship between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. That is the epiphany I had watching this scene in particular, because when McCoy is examining Spock and Spock just kind of like gives him a look, the relationship is already established. The dynamic is already there. That's something that definitely came from showrunner Gene Kuhn, but it's definitely what makes this episode really stand out. And as we get deeper into the episode, when Spock, spoiler loses his sight and, and, Kirk is furious with McCoy. Just that that dynamic between the three of them is what I've always loved about Star Trek. Please observe. A one-celled creature resembling more than anything else a huge individual brain cell. Yes, that would answer a lot of questions. Do you understand what I'm suggesting, Captain? I think so. Because he's super smart. Like, he immediately goes, oh, I get it. I get what's going on here. (laughs) This may be one cell in a larger organism. An incredibly huge organism. By the way, do you know what the largest life form on Earth is? The la- it's a whale, isn't it? That is the largest moving life form on Earth. The largest life form is mushrooms. Is like they're, they're these interconnected mushrooms where it's like you might see one mushroom come up, but it's actually, and I'm not an expert on this, I haven't looked at this in a while, but it literally is, it could be, you know, a, a square mile underneath that's all somehow connected. No kidding. I never yeah. knew that. Yeah. Um, I don't. I, my number might not be that big, but I'm pretty sure it's that it's the largest thing on earth. Aren't you impressed that I knew the whale? <laughs> I am. It's a great job. Good job. I will give you points on your Jeopardy score. There you go. You got double Jeopardy. <laughs> and of course, this is why our phasers didn't work so well on it. Which I don't know if it quite makes sense, but that's okay. The Denovan that flew into the sun cried out that he was free, that he had won. That's the angle to work on, gentlemen. And it's Kirk that comes up with that, and it's later on, and McCoy reports to Kirk. I'm sorry, Captain. I've tried everything I can. Barren radiation, intense heat, even as great as 9,000 degrees. And you're wasting your time. Because we got to not kill the host. So you put him in 9,000 degrees, well, that's going to kill all the humans. So even if it worked, it doesn't matter. And Kirk is losing his patience. Yep. And who can blame him? Uh, and new info that he provides, he goes, we have 14 science labs aboard the Enterprise. Yeah. I just thought, oh, wow, canon, that we have 14 science labs on the Enterprise. And it goes to why I dislike the line, I'm a soldier, not a diplomat, in Errand of Mercy. Because it's like, you got 14 science labs on your ship. You are not just a warship. you got a lot of other stuff going on here. I understand your concern, your affection for Spock. The fact that your nephew is the last survivor of your brother's family. No bones. There's more than two lives at stake here. And because what's interesting is it was Bones who a couple of scenes ago said, hey, it's not just about Spock and your nephew. There's millions of people down there. And now Kirk is so internalized it that it's reversed. I cannot let it spread beyond this colony, even if it means destroying a million people down there. 
Do you know what he would say if he did have to destroy a million people on that planet? What would he say? General Order 24. Wait a minute. Hang on. General Order 24 is wait, wipe okay. out the whole planet. Wipe out the whole planet. But that's what makes sense for General. This is the only time. I think um, uh, Rob, our, our guest on the show, he was the one who said if you had to stop a disease or something, that's where General Order 24 would make yeah, sense. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I always looked at General 24, General Order 24 as like. Uh, when there is a, I guess, an oppressor, but in this case, there is an oppressor. It's the parasites inside the yeah. humans. You're right. Yes, Here's sir. my observation. And again, like I'll tell you, Steve, these deep dives that we're doing, I, I love when people tell us that we are making them see the original series in a whole new light. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? We're doing these deep dives and it's making us see the original series in yeah. a whole new light as well. For example, when Kirk makes that comment about killing a million people, right. it made me think of Kodos the Executioner. Of course, absolutely. Conscience of the King. So Kirk was witness when he was younger to the governor of Tarsus IV killing 4,000 people so that 4,000 others would be able to live. 4,000. He killed yeah. 4,000 people. And now Kirk is pondering the very real possibility that he's going to have to order the death of a million people so that billions and billions of people will not get infected by this, this madness. Talk about a big, 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 huge decision, one that's in some ways bigger, far bigger than the one that Kodos had to make. But it's also, it is also very different. I regret I see no other choice for you, Captain. We already know this thing has destroyed three civilizations, perhaps more. Gentlemen, I want to stop too, but not at the cost of destroying over a million people. Again, this is people saying truths, disagreeing, but both speaking truths, because Spock says... Including myself, Doctor, and Captain Kirk's young nephew. This is why I went, you know what? I did not give this episode enough credit. We are actually facing really, really big decisions. Nimoy's performance is great. Kirk is dealing with really, really heavy decision. He's just lost his brother. He's just lost his sister-in-law. His nephew's probably going to die along with his best friends, and he might have to make the decision to kill them. This, I, I really went, you know what? This episode's a lot better than I gave it credit for. Absolutely. But once it spreads past here, there are dozens of colonies beyond, and billions of people... If killing five people saves ten, it's a bargain. Is that your simple logic, Mr. Spock? You know the trolley experiment? Um, so the trolley problem is a classic psychological moral conundrum. And there are two versions of it. Here's version one. There's a trolley speeding out of control. And standing on the tracks of the trolley are f a family of five people. And they're going to die if nothing happens. And you are standing next to a switch that can switch the trolley onto a different set of tracks. But on that track is one person. So you can do nothing, in which case five people die, or you can pull the switch, in which case one person would die, but you would kind of be responsible for killing that one person. What would you do? Well, let's see. What did Kirk do in the city on the edge of forever? He let someone die in order to save a lot of people. Then that's what I would do. And when they do this experiment, most people, I think it's 70% or so, will say exactly what you just said. And this is not a right answer here, by the way. These are really, really difficult questions. Yeah, but that is what Kirk did in Sydney. Absolutely. Here's the second version. Same thing. Trolley is speeding down the tracks, family of five, except instead of standing next to a switch, you're standing on a bridge above the trolley tracks. And on that bridge is a big guy. And if you push him, you know that if you push him off the bridge, he will fall down on the tracks in front of the trolley, slowing down the trolley enough for the five people to get out of their way. Do you do it? 
Well, let's see. What did Kirk do in City on the Edge of Forever? Well, now it's, do you push Edith Keeler in front of the car? Oh, wow. Okay. No. Uh, it's, you know, it's interesting. That's a really good it's point. It's a very difficult question. Because both, both actions, whether it's hitting the button to switch it to another track to kill mm -hmm. one person, or the second option of putting the bigger person down to mm -hmm. stop it, and the, the, the end game is still the same. The end result is the same. You save the five people. But one requires that they, they just both require different actions. I mean, in the sense that Kirk held McCoy back mm -hmm. from saving Edith Keeler, he was responsible for her death, but he didn't cause her death. Yes. But the situation that you're describing, in both cases, you're, you are responsible for the death of the one person. You're just using different methods to cause it. The results are exactly the same. Yeah. Either five people die or one person dies. But, but it feels really, really different. It feels different because in one way, you've got one person on one track, you've got five people on another, and it's like, you know, uh, the, the train is going, which switch do you pull? Then I'd rather one person die right. than five. But if it's just one track... And it says, you're talking about one person. Like, I you would are never, murdering that person. I would, not push, I would not push that person onto a track. So that's what most people say. So mo I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like 70 or 75% will pull the switch. But only 25 or 30% of people will push someone off the bridge. The results are totally the same. You save four lives by doing it. And yet it feels wrong to do this. And Kirk is now faced with a choice of not allowing a million people to die, but beaming his best friend and his nephew down to the planet and giving the order to kill a million people. Now, in earlier versions of the screenplay, uh, it was actually even darker than this. Uh, the story outline had the people of Deneva about to carry out a mass suicide on the entire planet. Oh, wow. So that was definitely changed. Another early version of an Operation Annihilate had the Enterprise journeying to the home planet of the creatures and the parasites, destroying the planet, in effect killing the main brain so that the parasites that were inside the humans were no longer a threat. Wow. So those were early versions of the story. I'm glad they made that change. Yes. But I love Kirk in this moment because he says, I will accept neither of those alternatives, gentlemen. I cannot let this thing expand beyond this planet. Nor do I intend to kill a million or more people to stop it. I want another answer. And he's so strong in this moment. I'm putting you gentlemen on the hot seat with me. I want that third alternative. And he hits the table and he walks out. I love that scene. He goes, I want that third alternative. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. We, one of the flaws I would say in this episode is we kind of repeat the same scene. Because McCoy, how many times in the scene does McCoy say, I don't know what to do? You know, and that's where we have basically the identical scene again. We've done every conceivable test, and we can't come up with anything, and Spock says, I therefore request permission to beam down to the planet's surface. I also suggest your nephew accompany me. Request denied. And again, Nimoy's performance is so delicate and so spot on. Captain, I do not make this request lightly. I do not know how much longer I can hold out against the pain. But I do know what the boy will go through should he regain consciousness. And he says, Request denied. What's interesting, too, is in a weird way, he's torturing his best friend. You know, best friend is saying, put me out of my misery. Yeah, a very, very difficult thing to do. Yeah. Kirk doesn't want to. He is not going to settle 
until he has a third alternative. He's not, and he's not going to settle at all. But he's he insists on on a third alternative yep. that will save his friend, save his nephew, and, and prevent him from from wiping out a million people. Well, and this is Kirk throughout all of Star Trek. He he, you know, t- turns. Death into a fighting chance for life. Uh, he you know? does not believe in a no-win scenario. Yep. He does not believe in the no-win scenario. And we go back to the Denovan flying into the sun. Something worked to free him from the thing. And this is where one of the, my other problems with this episode. It, come on, McCoy and Spock. You guys are so dumb <laughs> to have not. They go, we've tried heat. We've tried radiation. What else does a sun do? <laughs> it's like, we all know what else a sun does. Yeah, yeah. We're a little <laughs> bit ahead of this one. Yeah, I mean, this one. But the way they do it is great, which is... We're going through it. He's asking, what properties does the sun have? And Spock is saying the most basic things. It exists physically. It occupies space. It has mass, therefore gravity. And during this moment, Kirk is just kind of fooling around with his computer. And he hits a button and a light starts to blink. And he goes, it's bright. It radiates a blinding light if you're close enough. It's so obvious. Yep. They, they couldn't see the forest through the trees. But all the other properties, and again, you know, we're ahead of it. What yeah. does the sun have? We know, okay, just say it, say it, it's light. But it's actually Kirk who has the epiphany. And we built a thing in the lab, and Chapel puts the creature into this little room, and we figured out how much light was hitting that Denovan ship when he said he was free. He says it was one million candles per square inch, which, because you know me, I had to figure out, well, how much is that? Light is today generally measured in lumens. It's 12.75 million lumens. For comparison, like your basic 100-watt bulb is 1,600 lumens. A big light on a movie set, like a 10K, is like uh, 10,000 lumens. So you picture you're around 120,000 100-watt bulbs. <laughs> Something like that is mm-hmm. how much light there is. I know nobody listening actually cared about that, but that's what I care about sometimes when I'm trying to figure this stuff out. And we put on some cool goggles, which look like, are they the same goggles from using the phaser cannon on the cage? Uh, that is a great question. I think they are. Oh, that's a great question. But yeah, they, they, they're, I have to go back and look. They're Maybe. not the goggles from, is there no truth? Is there, whatever that is title. Is there truth? No beauty. Yeah. There's not the goggles from that. Cause those are red and they hit the switch and then they see completed and they look things dead. We killed it. And G- Kirk still looks concerned. It worked in a lab with a creature exposed to everything we can give it. But what about the people who are infected? And McCoy is not catching on. Well, I don't know. Maybe trial. Maybe. Man. There's no time for maybes, Bones. We need to know now. But I'd have to put him. Yes, we'd have to put someone who's infected under that light. And at that moment... You'll need a host for the next step in the test to determine whether the creature can be driven from the body. I am the logical choice. But in order to test it on Spock, you have to replicate the conditions on the planet, which means that he cannot wear goggles because people on the planet will not have any kind of protective goggles. So Gene Kuhn, one of the changes that he made, a change that was not going to stick, was that in his version had everyone on Deneva going blind to free them from the aliens only to have – check this out – only to have medics sent to the planet to restore the vision of a million wow. people through corrective eye surgery. That seems like a bit much, so it's a good thing that plot point was evolved yeah. further. And then there's this moment where we have to make the decision to send Spock in without the goggles, and Kirk says, I agree completely. Unfortunately, you're both right. 
and again, this is my note here. I was like, he just let Edith Keeler die mm-hmm. to save millions. And now he is so hardened that he is saying, yes, we ha- there is no choice. We have to put my best friend into this thing that is going to be dangerous because that is what has to be done to save millions. That's heavy stuff. And he sits down in the chair and you can still see him twitching from the pain because I bet the creature is fighting him a lot at this moment. And they close the door on him. Mr. Spock's the best first officer in the fleet. Which, again, I love because, you know, we talk so much about the Spock-Kirk relationship and the the Kirk-McCoy relationship. We don't talk as much about the McCoy-Spock relationship. McCoy loves Spock. Absolutely. Listen, some of the best moments in the original series are between Spock and McCoy. When I think of an episode like Bread and Circuses, where they're they're in the jail cell, Mm -hmm. and McCoy is telling Spock, I know why you're not afraid of dying. You're more afraid of living. I think really that, doctor yeah at, or or even uh you know an episode uh, that it's uh one of the last episodes we're really going to do a deep dive of um all our yesterday yeah absolutely uh, that that the, the best moments of that episode are yeah. the scenes between uh, Spock and McCoy but what makes the dynamic between Spock and McCoy so great is that the way they they bicker but they really do respect and love each other and they hit the switch <laughs> You see Spock wince in pain as he shuts his eyes when he gets hit by the light. Turn it off. Open up the door. Spock stands up and says, The creature within me is gone. I am free of it. And the pain. And we go, yes. Yes. And at that moment, he also says, I am also quite blind. Well, and he doesn't just say it. It's that he's trying to get away with not saying it. And then he walks into a table. I'm also quite blind. Now, Gene Kuhn, uh, when he did his pass on the screenplay, he added Spock's blindness. Mm. And he also added a scene where Scotty is infected. Oh. Because at one point, Scotty had clumsily knocked over a specimen case carrying mm. one of the creatures, and it, and it got to Scotty. But again, that was something that obviously did not stay, but, right. the, but the, the blind part did for Spock. Well, and you can see, and again, it's how how great Nimoy is at playing the emotions and playing him conquering his own emotions. When he says, I am also quite blind, you can see the that's a lot that he's and he's and his Vulcan brain is going, it's worth it. Then now I'm blind. That's the new reality. Accept it. But there is a moment where the human side absolutely of him is in shock. Yep. That he is blind. And I love that Kirk actually has kind of his arms around Spock. Is kind of holding him. And he, they sit down and Chapel enters. Doctor, the results of the first test on the creature's remains. And then she notices Spock. And again, this is a moment where I wish we had just a little more Chapel. Yep, absolutely. I, w- I wish she was the one who guided him to the chair. You know, or something. You could just do a little thing to have a little bit more of that connection. I, I think there's an episode that what you're talking about with Chapel showing more emotion, making it more mm. more personal for her, was better utilized in a private, private little, little war, war yeah. than it is in this episode. And then McCoy looks at the results and realized, basically, that he messed up. What is it? I threw the total spectrum of light at the creature. It wasn't necessary. So this is where I feel like this episode starts to get a little convoluted. I agree. Because there's... One thing for an episode to go through rewrites, as most of these episodes did, it's another thing for an episode to be overwritten. And I feel like that's one of the flaws of Operation Annihilate, is that it's, it's overwritten. And here we are in the last act, and there's so much being added to the mix here, with Spock becoming blind. And then the, the other 
reveal, which we'll get to. Yeah. But the fact that you have one spectrum of light was needed, that was something that Gene Roddenberry himself added in to his final rewrite, that it was only one spectrum that was needed to kill the aliens, and that spectrum was not not harmful to humans. Right. And the reason I bring that up is because McCoy not realizing that early on or doing some more tests or like it, it was avoidable. Well, you know, saying just a little while ago that I love having these intelligent, competent people that disagree. This is a moment of McCoy's total incompetence. And also the whole thing doesn't really make that much sense. It's like, yeah. okay, you're inside a building and this is still going to work. And they actually don't say what frequency of light we're talking about. It's okay. It's outside of the visible spectrum. Well, hitting people with a bunch of ultraviolet light, that wouldn't be really good for us either. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to hit people with a bunch of infrared. That's on the other side. That would, you know, cook us all. Obviously, Star Trek science doesn't have to work. And particularly, even though I love, I think, Nimoy's performance on being blind and Kirk's performance on being angry with McCoy and McCoy's performance of feeling terrible i think they're all really good but you write yourself into a corner that you have to write yourself out of in the stupidest way possible which yeah, is what we're going to get happens. to <laughs> yeah you're telling me that spock need not have been blinded and mccoy basically says yes and tries to you could see him about to apologize spock i doctor it was my selection as well it's done And then Shatner's anger and the way he plays this moment, because he says, Bones. In the angriest voice we've ever seen him address anyone in his crew. Absolutely. Maybe the angriest we've seen him in this way, because it's emotional anger. It's not like angry at a bad guy. It's deep anger. And then there's a pause. And then he says, and you can see the beat work on his face, which is, and I'm sure you've had this moment. You're so angry with someone you know that you have to walk away because you're going to say something you, you regret. Absolutely, yeah. And he just says, take care of him, and he walks out. And we're left alone with Spock and Bones. And then we dissolve to the bridge, and we're putting out the satellites. And by the way, this is one I don't love, the CG satellites. I think they don't look great. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But we see the 210 ultraviolet satellites in their position yep. instead of just hearing about them. And this is the, this effect of the Enterprise, like, Doing something to an entire planet, in this case, curing them, is something that we'll see in the third season and let that be your last battlefield. Oh, right. We're on the planet and there's like some red light and all the creatures start falling and they all dissolve, which I think is pretty cool. And Kirk calls down to sickbay and says, Tell Spock. It worked. And McCoy, in the most dead voice possible, says, Yes, Captain. You'll be happy to hear that. And then Kirk says, Bones. It wasn't your fault. Because Kirk has had a half hour to let go of some of that anger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Bones. And there's no answer. Bones. We're in a real down moment, and then it's later on. And in walks Mr. Spock. Captain, look. Mr. Spock. We just find out that the Vulcans have some inner eyelid that automatically protects them, and we don't think it's the worst. It's just terrible. I, 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 yeah. I mean, first of all, he forgot to mention, oh, I got this inner eyelid. Maybe that'll help. So that's uh, that's Gene Roddenberry adding Spock's never-before-mentioned inner eyelid. And again, you know, this is – I feel like this last act is so flawed. You, you know, they're, they're, they're piling on – plot points and developments while also trying to wrap up the episode and it just feels yeah. contrived and well, forced. If you've heard the term Deus es Machina, which is God in the machine, this is what it is. Is 
I just, I wrote myself into a problem I didn't know how to get myself out of. And so I just saved him with some inner eyelid that came out of nowhere. It is bad writing. I've always thought it was stupid. Even when I was a kid, I thought it was dumb. And then, and then it's so yeah. funny. Like Kirk walks up to Spock, and at this point, you can feel what I will call the coonism coming. Like, yeah, it's coming. here comes here comes the joke. Regaining eyesight would be an emotional experience for most. You, I presume, felt nothing. Quite the contrary, Captain. I had a very strong reaction. My first sight was the face of Doctor McCoy bending over me. Tis a pity, brief blindness did not increase your appreciation for beauty, Mister Spock. I don't like any of that. I don't think it's funny, and I don't think it fits what the circumstances. I, I completely agree, Steve. I mean, that you have this moment of levity, which I usually like, and I love that Coom really brought that to the fore when he became the showrunner. But in the case of all of this heavy stuff that we saw in this episode, plus the way that the prior episode ended, this moment of levity feels so forced. And while I think if you would have if, if taken this moment, especially when... McCoy says to Kirk, uh, don't tell Spock, I think he's the best first officer in the fleet. Right. Why, thank you, Dr. McCoy. You've been so concerned about his Vulcan eyes, Doctor. You forgot about his Vulcan ears. I think if you put that in another episode, it would have worked just fine. Well, th- I like that one much more than the scene Spock and appreciation of beauty thing. I think if you'd cut the appreciation of beauty, because this is in the episode, eyes and ears, and he did call Spock the best, I think that would have been okay. I think the other one is... Less good. But, you know, it's just hitting that tone exactly right can be hard. I just was more aware of just how, you know, you just have such a tense, dramatic episode and to just end it with the coonism. Maybe you didn't have to go that far into the levity. Maybe you kind of just like leaned into it a little bit while still appreciating just all of the drama that we saw of the prior 48 minutes. Well, you know, and again, we cut them slack. It's 29 episodes. How many extra? They had to do two extra that they didn't anticipate. Is that right? They were asked to do four extra that they didn't anticipate. That was rolled back to three. Yeah. So now you have three extra episodes. You're all exhausted. You're doing your best to get. And the thing that you have to remember is there's a deadline. Star Trek has to go on the air at this date. And there's sometimes you go, I don't know. That's the best joke I can think of. I mean, there, there have been things in scripts of mine where it's like, I got to figure out how to do something better than that. Third but, act problems. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's really, really, really hard. Now, even though the episode ends with that moment, there was actually a moment that was supposed to follow on the bridge between James Kirk and his nephew, Peter Kirk. So this is a scene that can be found on the Roddenberry vault, which uh, I, I explained before was a, a collection Right. of deleted and alternate takes from the original series that finally saw the light of day in a 2016 Blu-ray set called The Roddenberry Vault. And included is a scene where Peter Kirk is sitting in the captain's chair and he's wearing a, a Starfleet uniform, oh. the black pants, the boots, and the gold shirt. And he tells Uncle Jim that he wants to stay on Denevin. Hmm. Now, the scene was cut for time. But it's a shame it wasn't left in because this is a personal moment. This is Kirk's family, uh, the only survivor of his brother's family. And he's making the bold decision, a very Kirkian decision, to stay behind on Deneva to help with the recovery of the planet instead of just being safeguarded and going away with Kirk on the Enterprise. So if you want to see the scene, then definitely – check out the Roddenberry Vault on Blu-ray. If you want to see a picture of the scene and to see 
young Peter Kirk in in a gold shirt, you know, in the captain's chair talking to William Shatner as James T. Kirk. Be sure to check out this visual, this picture on our Facebook page right now. Um, So, Scott, what do people have to say about this show? Well, speaking of Craig Hundley, who played young Peter Kirk, he said, I was a big fan of Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry wanted me as a regular on the series as Captain Kirk's nephew. Wow. So my first reaction to that was yours. It was wow. But then I thought, thank God that didn't happen. It's Can you imagine Crusher. Wesley Crusher? <laughs> oh, my God. I'm sitting there like going, oh, my gosh. When I read that, when I read that quote, I'm like, wow. Can you imagine like Peter Kirk in season two of the original series? And I'm like, no, no, no Wesley Crushers on my enterprise. It's so, I, I feel so bad for Will Wheaton and the much maligned Wesley Crusher. You know, like th- – and there are some good Wesley Crusher moments. But, Absolutely, there are. Yeah. But the first two, about the first two seasons of yeah. Next Generation aren't good to begin with. But that's a whole other conversation that maybe we will have uh, on uh, Enterprise Incidents: The Next Generation. Uh, and so, anyway, Craig Hunley continues. Because of other commitments, I was unavailable. Gene did ask me back for the third season episode, and the children shall lead. Well, here's basically my final thoughts on. Uh, Operation Annihilate. I liked it much, much more. It's like, this is one for me where it's like, if you focus on this stuff, it's really pretty good. And it, But you have to do that. You have to ignore this other stuff. You know, so for me, it's ignoring the way those horrible creatures blast on neurons or whatever you said they're called look like the ending that is just sort of tacked on and poorly written. But if you watch just the Kirk, Spock, McCoy dynamic, and in particular Nimoy's performance, and if you want to play the Enterprise Incidents game of putting City on the Edge of Forever and Kirk's recent experience and the sacrifices he just made onto the show, it's pre- I actually think it's really good. I, I agree completely. I mean, like, rewatching this episode, I definitely found a whole lot more to like about it. Specifically, like you just said, the dynamic between Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. That whole, when, when the episode really gets into that that aspect of it after Spock is is infected, mm-hmm. I, I think that's where that's where that relationship is really brought to the fore, and that's what makes me resonate with the episode. And this new revelation I had watching Nimoy's performance in Operation Annihilate and looking at this as a as a, a test run for the kind of performance that he he gave so brilliantly in a mock time. I think there are definitely similarities to the way he played played the role in in, in the two episodes. But uh, ultimately, it's still not an episode that I love. I like it more than I did. And I think that, that since we have looked at this series in a serialized way, it has opened up Star Trek to a completely different way of appreciating and, and looking at the series and looking at Operation Annihilate. And looking at the continued tragedy that faces Captain Kirk after, right after, literally, he had to let the love of his life die, you know, actually cause her to die by holding McCoy back. Just the tremendous emotional weight on his shoulders. Uh, And like you said, it, it just really shows James Kirk as such a tragic figure in the way that he's endured so much loss. And as always, we would love to hear your reactions to Operation Annihilate. Do you think it's the greatest Star Trek ever? Do you think it's a big come down after City on the Edge of Forever? What are your feelings about it? Visit us on our Facebook page. Do a search for Enterprise Incidents. You can also follow the show on Twitter, on Enter Incidents, on Instagram at 
Enterprise Incidents. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love to get your reviews. As Scott said at the beginning of this episode, they are super, super important. Uh, you can also subscribe on Spotify or Stitcher or through Amazon or Audible. You can also listen to the show on YouTube. There's no video there, but you can listen there and leave your comments there. We get fantastic comments from all of you and great discussions on YouTube. And if you want to follow me, you can do so at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And if you like movies where people's bodies are taken over by things, you might want to check out the cinephiles episodes on John Carpenter's The Thing. You could check out Ridley Scott's Alien and James Cameron's Aliens. But if you want the actual devil to take over someone, well, you might want to check out our very scary episode on The Exorcist. Scott, how would people find you? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. And make sure, since we are now at the end of Season 1 of Enterprise Incidents, if you know someone, if you have a fan, a friend who's also a fan of Star Trek, doesn't matter which Star Trek is their favorite, make sure you share Enterprise Incidents with everyone you know, especially if they are fans of Star Trek, whether they are diehards or casuals. We've had so many so many responses to Enterprise Incidents from people who say, yeah, I never really watched the original series before, but um, I'm really watching it now for the very first time. And then, then I'm going back and listening to your podcast to do your deep dive on the episode that I just watched. So make sure you share it with those people too because there are people who are discovering the original Star Trek for the very first time. So please share Enterprise Incidents. And that does bring us to the end of season one and once again thank you so so very much for joining us on this voyage this season-long voyage of the starship enterprise and before we get into season two we have a couple special episodes that we are going to drop so make sure you stick around and then we will get into season two which will start with cat's paw but until then you know the saying keep going boldly (laughs) 